Should we be trying to reform public schools? Today, we invited Frederick Hess to talk about the state of public schools and how we can create fruitful and much-needed change. Rick Hess recently published his newest book, The Great School Rethink. He's the author of several other books, a contributor to Forbes, and the director of education policy studies at the American Enterprise Institute. He's also a father, teacher, and Harvard graduate. So join us on this episode as we dive into some of Rick's thoughts on rethinking public education. Welcome to the State of Education. So glad you've joined us today, and uh, we're excited to share our guest with you today. Uh, we have Frederick Hess in the studio with us today. He goes by Rick, so we're going to refer to him as Rick. Rick, thank you for joining us. We're excited to share with you today. Hey, great to be here. Thanks for having me. Awesome. Well, uh, Rick recently wrote a book, and he sent me a copy, and... Uh, right here for those of you who are watching. And the title is The Great School Rethink. Well, that's a catchy title, and it's one that many of us uh, think is the right thing to do. Uh, so we're going to talk about that today. First of all, Rick, uh, tell us just a little bit more about yourself, uh, kind of your, your backstory so our audience knows a little more who we're talking to, who they're listening to, your story, and then what got what helped you kind of, I'm going to write this book. <laughs> sure. Uh, I'm Director of Education Policy Studies at the American Enterprise Institute in Washington, D.C. Uh, been in that role for about two decades now. Uh, teach occasionally at colleges and universities. Um, I've mostly stepped back from that given the climate, but over the years I've taught it. University of Virginia, Harvard, University of Pennsylvania, Rice, Georgetown, Hopkins. Uh, I started out in this stuff the last century as a high school social studies teacher. Uh, I had uh, substitute taught in college uh, for pizza money. Uh, enjoyed it. Folks, that if you like substitute teaching, you'll love actual teaching. Uh, got a teacher credential uh, in the Harvard Graduate School of Education. Went down to uh, East Baton Rouge, uh, Louisiana, taught high school. Taught for a couple years. Uh was frustrated at, at the remarkable kind of sight of seeing a lot of nice people who, as best I could tell, all meant well, uh, working in an environment which was absolutely self-defeating. Uh, every time you volunteered for something, you wound up with more work on your plate and more frustration on your shoulder. Um, the environment was one where good intentions just seemed never to play out as intended. And this got me puzzling how the heck we could set up schools that work this way. Went back to the PhD thinking about this. Uh, that led to my first book, uh, Spinning Wheels, uh, looking at why it was that urban school reform doesn't seem to deliver. Came out in the late 90s with Brookings, got a lot of attention. I was a professor for a while, got hired away to the SAEI role. And one of the things I get to do now is because I don't actually have to do any of the hard work, is I have a lot of opportunity uh, to study things, to talk to folks who are doing it, uh, to observe. And this book, The Great School Rethink, is kind of how, you know, it, it captures a lot of my thinking uh, on the back end of the pandemic, which was just so destructive to so many families and so disruptive for so many schools and educators. Yeah, well, that's 
that was for sure. Uh, it was disruptive, but you know, it's interesting because your, your first chapter in the, in your book is titled The Great School Disruption. And, uh, for some time, uh, I've been talking to folk and I said, what we really need in this country is a strategic disruption of our educational system. Now, we don't want to blow it up. We need a strategic disruption that just gets it enough off center because it's so synchronized and such a system, if I may call it. And, and it, you know, it's hard to break up that system in order to create positive change. And so strategic disruption, it's kind of like Twitter and some, you know, uh, you know, some other things like that. So you're, you start out your first chapter stating between 1920 and 2020, there was very little change uh, in our educational system that basically we were stuck. I agree with that. Talk, talk to us a little more about that. Yeah, no, sure. And it's funny. I mean, you know, we talk a lot about disruption in education and the pandemic was surely disruptive. In no way was it strategic, which is true. true. Right um, look, I mean, the way to think about schooling is more than anything, I think parents and communities look to schools for their custodial function. The reality is if schools are picking up kids at the right time each day and taking the kids to campus and the kids are safe and they seem to have friends and they get home off the bus safe, reality is most parents are going to say, you're doing your job well enough. We're not going to poke around too much. And one of the things that's meant is that people who are trying to promote various school improvement strategies, kind of school reform in the vernacular, are usually trying to roll, roll a boulder uphill. So if you think about all of the 21st century reforms, no child left behind and race to the top and common core, these were all efforts by elites in Washington or on the West Coast to push schools to do reform. And what you saw was in lots of these cases, the parents, the communities, the teachers said, yeah, you know, this isn't for us. What's changed, I think, what happened during the pandemic was a couple of things. One, suddenly parents couldn't count on their schools. For the first time in generations, the schools were saying, yeah, you can't even take your kid to the bus stop. You're on your own. And in fact, instead of telling our teachers to reach out every day and ask you what you need, we're going to cut the contract day in half. So we're going to tell teachers work three hours and we're going to put up an hour of mediocre Zoom instruction and then some resources. And we'll call that asynchronous. And all of this fundamentally, I think, shattered the confidence that lots of families had that they could count on schools. So that's one. Second is when parents were looking over the kid's shoulder on that iPad or that laptop, they saw lots of stuff that left them concerned. They saw that kids were doing a lot less work than they thought, or they saw stuff that was felt ideological or political that they hadn't realized was going on. And then the third thing was teachers themselves felt enormously frustrated. They felt like the schools didn't have their back. Nobody was telling them what they were supposed to do. So what we had was a disruption in the sense, not like a Silicon Valley, hey, we're going to dream up something cool and new, but the things that we had been used to generation upon generation suddenly weren't there and weren't working. And as we've come out the other side, I think you see a lot of, a lot of evidence that parents and teachers are actually saying, we want you to give us something different. 
instead of say instead of them having this stuff pushed onto them from on high. Before we return to the podcast, we wanted to take a brief moment to bring an upcoming opportunity to your attention. August 17th is National Nonprofit Day. Nonprofits like the Noah Webster Educational Foundation thrive on your support and, in turn, strengthen whole communities. This year, we'd like to encourage you to celebrate nonprofits by finding one whose work you care about and giving in some way. Nonprofits grow when you share on social media, make a donation, or volunteer your time and expertise. When you support a nonprofit, you support the education and empowerment of individuals all over America and beyond. And now, back to Melvin. Yeah, absolutely. And so you use a phrase there about being a rethinker in your book. Chapter one, I believe, is where I saw that. Uh, how do people be a rethinker? What are you talking about? What do you mean by that? Yeah, you know, it's funny. Um, like I said, we talk a lot about reform. So you think about the logic of, say, No Child Left Behind or Race to the Top, these big R reforms. And the idea was our schools weren't built for to do what we want them to do today. Um, the common school movement uh, was launched in the 1830s and 1840s with a very straightforward mission, make all of these Catholic immigrant children less Catholic by having them read the King James Bible. So we had to build out schools so we could expose them. In the early 1900s, the goal was to get kids out of factories and out of mines and lock them up so that they would be safe and that we could drive up minimum wages for adults. None of this was about teaching kids, you know, skills for an information economy. None of this was about teaching kids to be citizens in the world that we inhabit today. This mission we're asking schools to do today, to educate every kid in an incredibly diverse nation uh, for college or career or service and to be active citizens is the right mission. But nobody in the history of the planet has ever done it. And there seems to be an assumption that if we just come up with the right teacher pay system or the right testing system, that somehow that'll be enough to kick schools over. And I think rethinking starts from a different premise. It says, look, there's nobody's trying, nobody's intentionally not serving kids. There are people who are self-interested and there are teacher unions that are more interested, I think, in the well-being of their members than in the kids or communities. But that kind of makes them human. It doesn't make them evil, to my mind. Um, means they're a problem, but they're, not a, but they're not a problem because they're malicious. What we need, I think, is a more fundamental rethinking. Why do kids go to the schools for the hours they do? What are kids doing all day? What does it mean to be a teacher anyway? What are we trying to do with technology? What's the right way to engage parents? And what does it mean to talk about choices and options? Um, why is it normal for parents to be able to move into a community where they will live by a school they choose, but odd for them to choose to move schools once they're enrolled? Why is it normal for kids to choose among electives, but somehow problematic for kids to choose into non-school options? So for me, the, the logic here is that we have this moment when there's a sense that what we're doing is not working for lots of families, for lots of communities, for lots of teachers. And rather than it be a chance for some great reset dreamed up by the U.S. Secretary of Education, like he's talked about, or a chance to reheat the same reforms that have disappointed, it's an opportunity for folks in those communities, in those schools to say, can we rethink 
the rules of the road. It's really an opportunity for us to rethink what is it that we really want? What really do we need when it comes to education? Because, you know, I mean, we've had these systems and we've gotten certain results, but too often the result, I mean, there have been some positive results, right? But in the big scheme of things, we're seeing a major sink, a major decline across the board. We see a general, uh, you know, disapproval, uh, just a general, uh, you know, parents aren't happy. Uh, teachers are leaving the trade by droves. Uh, there are so many things that are happening here. And I think all of these things are an opportunity to rethink what is it we really want? What is it we need? What, what do we need for our kids to know so they can be successful 10 and 20 and 30 years from now? Mm -hmm. And what do we have to do right now that can move us in that direction? Who are the key stakeholders and who gets to sit at the table? I think as I look at your book, mm -hmm. I think that's kind of a, a big factor there, is it not? Let, let me give you two real concrete examples, just because folks might be, well, I'm having trouble kind of nailing down exactly what we're talking about. Um, let me give you one one kind of structural and one kind of very in classroom. So, you, you know, when we talk about school choice, um, people like us who have a lot of time on our hands tend to debate this as you're either for empowering parents or you're for defending community schools. Um, but it turns out real parents don't talk about it that way. 75% of parents give their kids public school in A or B. And 75% of parents support things like tuition tax credits and vouchers and, educa and, and education savings accounts. For parents, it's not an either or. They say we like schools. That's where we meet our neighbors and where we go on Friday night. And we believe, especially after what we happened over the pandemic, that we all deserve the option to take our kids to an environment that serves them. Second example, so that so rethinking, you know, a reformer, I think, dives into this debate yeah. and says, I'm for empowering parents and I want to blow up, I want to end zip code education and I want to blow up systems. And what happens is you sound like one of these wild-eyed radicals yeah. for the same reason parents, you know, and normal voters kind of have a problem with folks who talk about defunding the police. They have a problem with people who talk about blowing up schools. They like police. They like schools, but they also believe in choices. A very different kind of example of rethinking is you'll hear a lot right now that kids need more time to make up for the learning loss of the pandemic. And it's, it's true. Um, New Mexico, for instance, just extended its school year by a couple of weeks at an extraordinary cost. Um, hundreds of millions or billions of dollars a year. Um, kids locked up in these buildings for an extra couple of weeks. And that's fine if we're actually going to use the time well. But here's where things get a little funny. You ask people, how much time do American kids spend in school? And they'll say, well, not as much as their peers around the world. And that's just wrong. Turns out that American kids, say grades K to nine, spend 100 hours more a year in school than other industrialized kids, uh, other industrialized nations' kids. So Japan, Germany. The question becomes, what are our kids doing in school all day? In Japan, for instance, the teachers rotate and the kids stay in a classroom so they don't lose learning time and transition. Columbia University study of, uh, you know, we have about 1,100 hours kids spend in school a year. Columbia University study in 2015 just started to break this down. Nothing fancy. Um, average, they identified uh, the school district they looked at, 
450 hours. So about 15 or 16 of those 36 weeks, kids were spending in school, no learning was happening during that time. That was break periods, that was uh, test, that, that was recess for testing. That was, and look, if you're telling me you don't want kids sitting at a desk minute to minute, being bored to death, I'm 100% on board. I'm all for kids having fun, getting out, running around. But having kids spend hundreds of hours during announcements, walking between classrooms, uh, waiting for teachers to read kind of directions, trying to get control of kids, this isn't good for anybody. So there the question becomes, rather than add more time, longer days, longer years, asking the question, what's happening all day in school? And how do we make sure more of it's making a difference for real kids? Mm, yeah. Well, you kind of dig into that in chapter two of your book where you talk about what do we do with our time? Uh, thank you for bringing that up. And, and you've made some points there. Uh, and readers, if they want to get your book, and we'll give them that opportunity. You can tell more about that as we kind of get to the end here. But uh, yeah, the, the use of time is really a critical area. The other thing that is important here uh, really is the whole approach to teaching, rethinking teaching, which is you cover in chapter three. Uh, jump into that a little bit. Yeah. You know, you, you hear all the times that schools are having trouble filling teaching jobs right now. Um, you get the impression that it, it's hard to fill teaching, and it is because we keep creating new jobs and it, it, which makes it harder and harder to hire talent. So, for instance, since 2019, we've lost a million kids from public schools, but we've added 32,000 teacher jobs. This is a long-term trend. Going back to the early 70s, for instance, we used to have um, a teacher for about every 27 students. Today, we have a teacher for every 16 students. That means we've had to add about a million and a half teaching positions, which means it's a lot harder to train and maintain quality which means you get a lot more long-term substitutes, which means you're paying a lot more people. Just to give folks a, a sense of what might be possible, the National Education Association, the nation's largest teacher union, reports that median teacher pay today is about $66,000 a year. Um, with benefits, average teachers on the books for 90,000. If instead of adding all those teaching jobs, even we added a lot of administrators too, but set that aside. If we had just spent all those dollars we spent hiring more teachers, and instead had spent them to pay the teachers, the million and a half teachers we had better since the 1970s, average teacher pay in the U.S. today would be about $140,000 a teacher. Average teacher pay would be about $140,000 a teacher. What we have chosen to do is add quantity rather than invest in quality. And here's one way to think about what, what it's done. If you go into a typical elementary school and you say to a principal, what are you most concerned about? Nine times out of 10, they'll tell you English language arts, reading, literacy. So you say, take me to one of your, to, to, to a great second or third grade reading teacher. And you watch them teach, and they're doing reading for 90 minutes. And then they're doing math for 90 minutes. And then they're going to watch kids eat lunch for 45. And then they're loading buses and unloading buses. And you say to the principal, is this the best way to use talent? And they go, well, that's what we do. And then you say, well, take me to your worst reading teacher. And they're doing the exact same thing. And time after time, this is, principals aren't troubled by this. And I say, look, if we went to the local hospital, and we watched the best pediatric surgeon in the state work at, operating on a kid. And that kid was halfway through a surgery on one of your students. And then she started peeling off her gloves. 
And you said, Doc, what are you doing? The surgery is only, and she said, it's my turn to go take patient around to the, jello around to the patients, but don't worry. We're going to have a lousy pediatric surgeon finish up. You'd say, this is a crazy way to think about utilizing scarce skills. So part of this is we've just built these, these assumptions. We're going to hire three and a half million teachers. We're going to pay them all okay. We're going to give them all the same job. We're going to give them a little bit of mediocre training and hope things work out. And what gets lost along the way is the opportunity to say, well, wait a minute. How are we thinking about who teachers are, what they do, how they get paid, which should give us, you know, it's not about spending more money or less money. It's about spending dollars and hiring adults in ways that are going to transform kids' lives rather than just get us from September to May. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's that's interesting concept. Well, I tell you what, chapter four, you talk about technology use, and that's such a big deal uh, and so important in our world today because our world is driven by technology, uh, so much of it. At the same time, you know, there are, there are dangers with technology and overstimulation of technology. And so finding the balance there, and we're not going to take, take, we're not going to dive into that right now for this interview. I want, people to get your book and and figure pick up where you're going with all of that Uh, but that's an important topic this episode of the state of education with melvin adams was made possible by the generous support of donors like you here at the noah webster educational foundation we want to make it easier for you to engage with your local government and school system whether you're a parent educator legislator or simply a concerned citizen Before we end today's episode, here's a snippet of our next episode. Because people are understanding choice to mean something different than it meant before 2020. It's about empowering all families to find something right for their kids and not just empowering families trapped in a lousy school to get out. It's a both and thing. If we take that understanding as kind of the logic of a rethink, then the point of choice is to empower families and educators to create and find school environments that work for everybody. Curious how you can make a difference? Learn about more ways you can help by visiting our website at www.nwef.org. We'll see you next time on The State of Education with Melvin Adams.